Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning, my name is Ruth Ann LaDuke, and I have the privilege of reading from God's Word for us this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, and if you don't have one, and there's, in the, there's one in the seat um, in front of you, under the seat. We'll be reading from Revelation, starting with chapter 21, verse 22, and reading through chapter 22, verse 5, and that's found on page 1231 in the um, Bible on the seat, in the seat in front of you. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I used to think that people, pastors, didn't preach on the book of Revelation because it's so difficult, but I actually found out today the real reason why people don't preach on the book of Revelation. It's because it's very hard to keep your Bible open to the last chapter of the book. It's got nothing to do with how hard the book of Revelation is to interpret. Just recently, really a couple years ago, we moved down here from uh, from Maryland. We bought our house in Maryland during a seller's market, which means that the people that sold us our house didn't have to, well, fix it up all that much before they sold it to me. We loved our house. We loved just about everything about it except for our back deck. It looked kind of old. Well, because it was. And it, it you know, it's supposed to look brown and beautiful, but ours looked kind of gray and dingy, even to my colorblind eyes. That's the way it looked. And I don't know anything about wood. I don't know anything about decks. I know they're good to sit on and to have 
food on and things like that. But I don't know anything about the upkeep of a deck. And so when we decided to sell our house, we did this exactly right because we decided to sell our house during a buyer's market, which meant that we now had to do something about our deck. Otherwise, our house simply would not sell. And so that posed a question for me, what to do with this thing. It could be that this deck was in bad enough disrepair that the deck just needed to be torn down and rebuilt. Or it could be that the deck just needed some work done to it. And with proper care and with proper restoration work, maybe this deck would be as good as new. I didn't know the answer to that question, but the answer to that question actually says an awful lot about how I would hope that my deck would be treated during that time. After all, if I decided that the deck in my backyard needed to be destroyed, perhaps I wouldn't mind at all how it was being treated. That is, it could be that my son might decide to take a saw and start sawing on the wood, and I wouldn't care one bit as long as he was safe because the thing's coming down anyway. It might be that my daughter decides to paint on the wood, and I wouldn't care one bit because it's coming down anyway. But if I decided that this deck was worth salvaging, that it could be remade and restored, then I would care very much about how my deck is being treated. I would want it to be protected, and I would want it to be cared for because it is going to be restored. And that very same process is something that affects the question that's before us this morning. The question that we are considering this morning is the question of how Christians should view and treat the physical world. How should we view and treat God's creation as believers? This is, I believe, a very important question that we need to face today. It's important for our time. And one of the reasons why is because of many of the things that our world is facing in, the current, in our current climate. But it's also a question which I believe Christians have been neglecting an answer. We have avoided this question for many reasons. Some of them have to do with the fact that we view this many times as a political issue, and Christians that do not want to be involved in politics avoid the issue altogether. Or maybe conservative Christians might view this as a liberal issue, the issue of the environment, and avoid it because they do not want to appear being liberal. But I think even more common among Christians today is many Christians have a very, very, I would call it a hyper-spiritualized view of Christianity. So that we view Christianity as really being all about saving souls out of this world for a heavenly existence rather than living in the world now. I believe the book of Revelation and particularly the last two chapters of the book of Revelation have a lot to say about how we should view the future of this world and therefore an awful lot to say about how we ought to live in it and treat it in the present time. So let's look again at Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I believe the, the strongest clue here into how we ought to view the future of God's creation comes from verse 3 of chapter 22. And Matt has already described this beautifully from earlier in chapter 21. He says, John says, that is, no longer will there be any curse. Isn't that beautiful? No longer will there be any curse. The curse that has ravaged this present world will be gone. Everything that causes us sin, everything that causes us sadness, everything that causes 
pain, destruction, everything will be eradicated from this world that is the result of the fall. And I believe this phrase actually gives us a great way to understand really what all of the scriptures teach about the future of the created world. Because in reality, the Bible never teaches that the world that we live in will be destroyed. The Bible never teaches that the physical world will be destroyed. You can only get that from a mistranslation of Second Peter chapter 3. Instead, the Bible speaks of the future of the created world as having the effects of the fall, the curse and sin eradicated from this world. But on the other hand, that also implies something very great. Because in order to eradicate the effects of the fall from this world, that means radical transformation must take place. Sin has affected every aspect of human existence as well as the creation itself. It has reached the deepest and darkest places of the human heart. It affects every interaction that we have with each other. It affects the sickness that we face from day to day. It gives us diseases. The, uh, it, it affects weather patterns. In order to eradicate the curse from the world, everything has to change. And so in the beginning of this chapter, John says that the present heavens and the earth will pass away and all things will be made new because the old order of things have to pass away in order for everything to be made new again and eradicate the, the, um, the effects of the fall from this world. Some have even likened this to a death and resurrection. After all, we believe as Christians that when we die, our bodies will rise again from the dead. Not just that God will replace our current bodies with some other body, but the bodies that die will rise again from the dead at the resurrection. We will be able to recognize each other in the new heavens and new earth because we will have the same bodies. Likewise, I suggest that we'll be able to recognize this world in the new heavens and new earth. It will be radically transformed, it will be renewed, and it will be healed. But we will recognize it because this is the world that God created, and he created it good, and he is not going to give up on his creation. Human beings may be incredibly sinful and have had uh, ravaging effects on the world around us, but we simply are not capable of making this creation so bad that that God can't do anything about it except destroy it and and make it again. We simply aren't that powerful. God is able to renew and restore this creation because he created it good and he loves it just like he loves us. That's the beauty of the gospel for us and it's the beauty of the gospel for the world as well. Jesus didn't give up on creation just like he doesn't give up on us. He sent his son to die for us so that we might have forgiveness before him, so that we might be accepted before him and so that we might live eternally in a new heavens and new earth with resurrected bodies. And just like he doesn't give up on us, he's not giving up on this world. The picture of restoration in this passage, I think, is one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. In fact, this, this passage of Scripture is really a part of a larger portrait of the new heavens and new earth, where it's described as a new Jerusalem. And interestingly, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem are given to us. It's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies of the temple. 
The Holy of Holies was viewed as a copy of God's heavenly throne room. It was a perfect cube. And our passage begins by saying we no longer need a temple because God is our temple. Because God's heavenly throne room, the reality of which the Holy of Holies was just a copy, the the reality is now descending from heaven to earth so that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God, so much so that the light of his glory fills the earth so brightly that we do not even need the light of the sun to be able to see. We can see simply because of the glory of God's presence dwelling among his people. And then the passage goes on to describe a river flowing from the center of this throne room, flowing from the throne through the center of the city and nourishing all of the city so that all of its inhabitants can be able to drink from this water of life. And it also nourishes the tree of life. And the tree of life, this is my favorite phrase in all the scripture, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Notice the picture of restoration that's being given to us. The leaves of the tree will heal the nations. The created order will be healed. It will be restored. It will be renovated. It will be made even better than what it is now because the effects of the fall will be completely eradicated from this world. And then in verse 24 and 26 of chapter 21, it says something that's really surprising. It says that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. Now, that's very interesting to me. And and if you read commentaries, you'll find very different answers of what this splendor might be. The honor and glory of the nations being brought into the kingdom of God. We don't know exactly what that is, but one thing I think we can say is if the previous heavens and earth, the one we currently live in, if it's going to be currently or uh, totally destroyed, there would be no splendor or honor or glory to bring into the new Jerusalem. There must be some continuity between what we see now and what God will bring about when he returns in order for this passage to be true. This is the beauty of the restoration of God's creation. And this is actually what is taught throughout the rest of Scripture, too. We don't have time to look at this in a lot of detail. But uh, if you're interested, look at chapter 8 of Romans, verses 20 and 21, where Paul actually describes the future of creation in very different but very complementary ways. He says that this world is destined towards the creation being liberated from its bondage to decay. It's one of liberation. The sin and the curse has brought decay into this world. It has brought bondage into this world, and it will be liberated from that bondage when Christ returns. It's not a destruction of this world. It's a liberation of this world. It's a renewal of this world. It's a healing of us, the nations, and the created order. That's what we're headed towards. That's what he means when he says all things will be made new. A little over a week ago, I was in a car accident. I hate to admit it, but I was. And no one was hurt except my car. It was pretty bad. And uh, State Farm decided to take my car and look at it, and they're interested in trying to decide whether this car is worth fixing. So they're looking at the worth of the car and the cost of repair. And so late earlier this week, I got a phone call from State Farm saying two words that I was dreading hearing. The words total loss were said by my insurance agent. 
my car was being totaled because in their minds, my car isn't worth fixing. It will cost too much to fix it. And so now I'm in the market for a new car. I have good news from this passage. The words total loss do not appear in God's vocabulary when he looks at you. The words total loss do not appear in God's vocabulary when he looks at me. And they do not appear in God's vocabulary when he looks at the world in which we live. God does not do a cost-effectiveness analysis on this creation. He created it and is good and is beautiful and he loves it just like he loves you and me. And this is part of what gives us grace and power in this present world is we know that when God looked at us, in spite of all of our sin, despite of all the stuff that's happened to us in our past, besides all the stuff that's happened in our present, he looks at us and he forgives us and he draws us into his family and he enlists us to serve in his kingdom. And he does the same for the world that we live in. I had a friend come and look at my deck. He brought a power washer with him and he started working on my deck. I couldn't believe the difference. In just a few short hours, my deck was completely transformed. And then he brought one of these, I don't know what they're called. It's not a spray painter. It's not like he had a can of spray paint, but it was a a spray painter. It was a power spray thing. And it sprayed paint on the on the deck where there was once paint before he power washed it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was really cool. I really wanted one, even though I don't know what they're called. But my deck was looked totally different as a result. And then I went and I found these uh, these lights because we had these 4 by 4 posts that used to hold a privacy wall. The privacy wall was an eyesore, so we tore it down. But then I had these posts on our deck, 4 by 4 posts that went up to above my head. They had no purpose. And so uh, I took a... Uh, these these four by four lights, they're solar powered lights, and I stuck them on the top. It was really cool. So I didn't need the light of my porch lamp anymore because I had the light of these solar powered lamps that would power the uh, would light the deck during the night, so bright that it was. <clears throat> the glory of the of the of the solar lights uh, lit the entire the entire deck. I couldn't believe how different my deck looked, and all of a sudden this thing that was an eyesore was now one of my favorite parts of the house. This is what God's going to do with this world. I believe, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I hope one day to go to the Grand Canyon. But if I never make it to the Grand Canyon, I cannot wait to see it in the new heavens and new earth. Because it will look even better now than the pictures I see. This world is going to be transformed. It's going to be even better than we can imagine it ever being. This is his creation. This is his world. And he's not giving up on it any more than he's giving up on us. So what does that mean for us now? How should we live if this is the future of God's creation? And this is where the question can become a little dicey. And for many of us, this is where, in our minds at least, it becomes a very political issue. And I really don't want to deal with it as a political issue. What I really want to do is deal with it as a theological issue. Because this is actually something that has affected the church theologically from almost its very beginning. The church from the very beginning has been uh, has viewed the creation as really it's been procreational, if I can say it that way. And I, please don't I don't mean it the way we often use the word. It's procreation. It's for creation. But there was a sect of Christianity that developed in the second century called Gnosticism, which I think we can safely call anti-creational. 
They believed the world around us was at best a prison for the soul, for the spirituality of us. And we needed to be liberated from it. The very goal of Gnosticism was that we would die and leave this physical world to have a purely spiritual existence flying up in the heavenly clouds. In the 19th century, if I can fast forward some, theological liberalism significantly affected the church. And what theological liberalism taught us was, or what they believed anyway, was that uh, we didn't have any need for things like the death and resurrection of Christ and his second coming because that's what modern people are too enlightened to believe in their minds. So for them, the gospel became a very social gospel where the whole goal was for human beings to be able to create a utopian society in this world without God even having to return. And so the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s rightly reacted against this, but they pushed the pendulum way to the other side. And they began to view the gospel as being completely and utterly only spiritual. So that it was all about saving souls. And then with the Second World War and the Depression, we began to become much more pessimistic towards the world around us. And we began to think, like, why bother polishing the brass on a sinking ship? Let's just save souls out of this world because this world is going to pot anyway. And so we can populate heaven with souls. And that became the mindset of fundamentalism. In a sense, we kind of inched closer and closer towards Gnosticism. But evangelicalism and Orthodox Christianity has always been pro-creational. It's always seen the created world as being good and worth being restored and redeemed. And in fact, this view comes not not only from how we view the the future of the history of of, uh, of this world, but also from the very beginning. This is, in fact, the job description that God gave us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you remember, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he told Adam to care for the garden and to protect it, to cultivate it. And in chapter 1, he gave us what theologians call the cultural mandate, where we were told to multiply and fill the earth with images of God, and to rule over the earth under the direction of God. In a very real sense, what we were called to do is to take the boundaries of Eden and expand it to fill the whole earth so that we could bring God's reign and God's glory to bear in every crack and crevice of creation so that the entire earth would reflect the glory of God just like the waters cover the sea, so that God's will will be done in every aspect of creation, just as it's done in heaven. That's the goal of human existence. That's our mission from God, simply as human beings. The best word to describe this, I believe, is stewardship. God calls us to be stewards of this world. Now, stewardship is an important word because stewards do not reign on their own. They do not get to govern simply as they see fit. Stewards govern under the rulership of another ruler, in our case, the creator God and king. We are not free simply to govern this world, to use it as a resource to uh, supply our pleasures and our ambitions. This world is under our stewardship so that we can spread God's glory, his reign, and his will to the ends of creation. 
We are caretakers and protectors of this creation. Not industrialists. They get to use the world for our own pleasures. That means lots of different kinds of things for us today. It means when we go and walk through the park and we see some trash, we're exercising stewardship and we pick up the trash and put it in the trash can. It means when we, when we look at our finances and try to be responsible with our finances, we do so not just because it's a good thing to do, because it allows us to exercise better stewardship in the way that we handle the world around us. It means we care for biodiversity of our planet. It means that we, cons- we are concerned with finding ways to create and find fuels in a way that do not provide a negative impact on our environment. It means that we care for our children, raising them to love Christ and be responsible stewards of the planet that God's given us. It means even the Great Commission. There's a very real sense in which even the Great Commission is an aspect of the stewardship that God has given us over all creation because simply... being involved in people's lives and sharing the gospel with others multiplies images of Christ in this world and it allows more people to express the glory of God in all of this world. It is an aspect of our stewardship of creation that we share our faith with others around us. All human existence really can be subsumed under this idea that we are stewards of the mission of God to see God's glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And every single one of us in this room, no matter who you are, no matter what your gifts are, you have a vocation from God, a calling. In fact, you have many of them, probably. You might be a student. You might be a a son or a daughter. You might be a mother or a father. You might be a toll booth operator. You might be a geologist. You might be a pastor. Whatever your vocations are. They're given to you by God as not just a job for you to do. They are opportunities for you to spread the glory of God and the reign of God and the will of God into every crack and crevice of this world in which God has given you influence. So that God is glorified and the trees of the fields clap their hands because of the way you live. They clap their hands in praise to God because of the way you and I live in this world. That's what we're called to do. I used to be a geologist, and when I was a geologist, I didn't understand what I was doing at all. I didn't understand the doctrine of vocation, and I really believed that in order for me to serve the Lord, I needed to leave geology and become a pastor. So I went to seminary, and I believe God called me down that path, but he used my bad theology to be able to do it, because in reality, as a geologist, I was just as capable of serving the Lord as I am as a pastor, because that's the priesthood of all believers. That's a doctrine of vocation. God has given us the opportunity to be able to express our service of him through all the vocations that honor him. I used to be a geologist. I met a guy there. His name was Richard Yim. I went to school or went to, went to uh, work one day. Somebody asked me what, um, what I did over the weekend. Well, I had gone to a church picnic, so I did. I went to a church picnic. I shared that with them. Somebody else overheard me describe that, and he looked and he came up to me and said, he said, I know that you're a Christian, but are you a born-again Christian? And so I said, well, yes, but let me explain what that means. And so we had this conversation about what being a born-again Christian means. So then another guy, Richard Yim, came up to me, and he overheard that conversation, and he said, can we talk? So we went out to lunch, And he shared with me that he didn't believe that he had meaning and significance in this world because unless there was a God to give meaning and significance to this world, there was no point. And so we talked. I shared the gospel with him. He became a Christian. 
And here's what I think we need to get from that. It's not just now there's one more Christian that gets to go to heaven when he dies. That's great enough. But it's also now one more geologist that gets to see God or see as his life ambition, seeing God's reign brought into the world of geology more so than it was before. Let me ask you a question. What are your vocations? What are your gifts? What are your callings? What are the things that God has given you in your life? What are your spheres of influence? And ask yourself during this week, make a list if you need to. How can I bring God's reign to bear in those areas of my life? Don't limit yourself simply to ministering to people, although that's important. In fact, the central and most important aspect of it. But please understand, even picking up trash in your local park is part of exercising stewardship over creation. So be creative. Think broadly about how you, as one of, of humanity's people, can display the reign of God in this world by the way that you live so that the trees of the fields might clap their hands and praise to God because of what God does in and through us as human beings, as Christians. Because when Christians live according to the cultural mandate, we also fulfill the Great Commission because we share the gospel with those we love in the midst of the fallenness and brokenness of the world around us. This world is not a total loss. You are not a total loss. God never uses that vocabulary to describe us. He loves us too much. He came and he died and rose again that we might be brought into his kingdom. He purchased for us a new heavens and a new earth. And one day we will live in it without sorrow, without mourning, without crying or pain. Death will be eradicated and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we want to bring everyone with us that we possibly can. But we also get to be a picture of that in the present time. In the way that you and I live our lives now, we get to give the world a foretaste of what's yet to come, of the way the world will be when Christ returns. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your world. And we thank you for that wonderful truth that you shine in all that's fair. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to be able to see your glory, your power, your wisdom in the world in which we live, and that you would give us wisdom to be able to live for your glory in it now in every aspect of our lives. We pray that you would give us opportunities to share our faith with those who do not know you yet. We pray that you would give us opportunities to be able to bring restoration to the fallenness of the physical world around us as well. We pray that you would give us wisdom so this church will be able to make a difference in this world. That this world will be a different place spiritually, socially, physically because of what you do in and through us. We thank you for that mission. And we thank you for the hope that you will bring restoration to our lives and to the world around us. For it's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. 
To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.